Good morning. What a joy to be with you. Uh, there is no other place that I would rather be besides heaven itself than being with you. I long for the Lord's Day. It's just the time of the week together with Wednesday. But especially the Lord's Day when we assemble together and it is indeed heaven's embassy on earth. It's heaven on earth. It's the local church. So when assemble together to worship, build each other up, love Christ, sing to Him, pray to Him. So there is no greater time than this time here. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 2 through 11. Philippians chapter 3. And if you can, please stand. Here's the word of the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. <laughs> Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Much more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, filthy garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, Becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please be seated. Yes, Father, we beg You for Your grace and Your mercy to continue upon us. You are a very good, loving, gracious, and generous Father. You have given us Your Son, and You promised to give us Your Spirit. In an even greater measure, and we need the Holy Spirit right now. This is a supernatural task to hear the Gospel, to preach the Gospel, to comprehend the Gospel. So no one here is able or capable of doing that apart from your Holy Spirit working in us. So help us. Help me, Lord. Help the congregation. I pray that those who are prone to be distracted, that they would put away all distraction, turn off cell phones, thoughts, put to death thoughts that are coming across and hindering them from hearing, comprehending, and beholding Christ through the preaching. We pray for the children here. Touch their hearts. Draw them to You. We pray for the churches in Salem, Lord. Bless Your flock here in Salem. We pray for Your sub-pastors, those who are under You, that they would preach Your Word faithfully today. So be glorified. That's our cry. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
someone was to ask you, what is a Christian? Someone were to ask you, what is a Christian? That's a word that we often use. Remember last Sunday we were talking about the words that we often use and don't know much the meaning. If someone was to ask you, what is a Christian? What would you answer? What is a Christian? The Merriam-Webster, if we go to the dictionary, it defines the Christian as one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. So the Merriam-Webster dictionary defines a Christian as one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's partial truth here, because yes, Christians do believe in the teachings of Jesus, but there are many people in hell who believed in the teachings of Jesus. I have relatives in hell, dear, beloved relatives in the lake of fire that hold to some of the teachings of Jesus. So that's a partial truth. For many people in America, Christians are those boring, conservative, homophobic people who like watching TBN preachers. That's how most people in America would define a Christian. While for others, Christian is one who attends church. So if you attend a church, you are consequently a Christian. Or you were baptized. I was baptized, therefore I'm a Christian. Or those who listen to the fish or Caleb, since it's safe for the whole family. Still some believe that a Christian is one who displays a high level of morality. And they're going to define that morality. So maybe it's not cussing, not drinking. The women wearing long dresses. Attending Christian school, being homeschooled, having family devotionals every day. So for some people, that's what is a Christian. It's fascinating that the first time in the Bible where the word Christian is used in, is in Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And they call those who follow Christ a Christian. The word is fascinating. I, I heard someone say one time that the word means little Christ. Now, it has nothing to do with that. A Christian, you think about even the, the other terms that we see in the Bible, the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? But those who belong to the household of Herod. Caesareans, those who belong to the household of Caesar. Neronians, those who belong to Nero. So that was the idea of a Christian. is the one who belongs to Christ. Belongs to the household of Christ. That's the basic idea behind the word Christian when it's first used in the New Testament. Speaks of those who are intimately connected with Jesus. So if you ask Paul, Paul, what is a Christian? We have been studying Philippians and if you were asked, to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what is a Christian? And I'm pretty sure that Paul, the primary definition, I know that he has other words for a Christian, but the primary definition of, for Paul of a Christian is what? In Christ. The one who is in union and communion with Christ. One who is in Christ. No longer in Adam. In Christ. One who died with Christ. One who was raised with Christ. One whose life is Christ. That is a Christian. One who can say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's a basic concept of a Christian. And there is more. As you, This union with Christ, to be a Christian, is to belong to Christ. And there is also another aspect. You belong to the body of Christ. James Brownson, he writes his book, The Promise of Baptism. He says, Christians are always learning and growing, not just so they have a massive brain, but toward becoming in their daily lives the kind of persons that they, are, they already are in their union with Christ. Huh. When God joins Christians to Jesus... God also joins them to something bigger than themselves. They become incorporated into the church, the body of Christ. In the New Testament, it's inconceivable for Christians to think of themselves as united to Christ 
without also thinking about the ways they are united to other Christians. From the beginning, it was unimaginable that someone might become a Christian without also becoming part of a church, a local gathering of disciples of Jesus. The union with Christ experienced by Christians also unites them to each other. That's something you don't hear. If you ask someone to define a Christian, you will not hear someone who is so deeply united with Christ, whose life is so deeply also united with Christ's people. This is not just attending church. To attend church is easy. But to be the church, to be the ecclesia, to be united with Christ and His people, that's a vital mark of a Christian. And that's what Paul has been showing us in Philippians chapter 3. If you ask, what is a Christian? One easy way is to go to the book of Philippians and you see what a Christian is. That's what Paul has been developing here. And especially in chapter 3, as Paul gives his own testimony. And that's where we are, Philippians chapter 3, starting verse 2 through 11. You see Paul giving his testimony. And why is Paul giving his testimony? Look at verse 2. Why is Paul giving his testimony? They're false teachers. The reason for him to give his testimony is to exalt the grace of Christ and protect the church from any, any temptation to fall into the stupid heresy of you can do something for Christ. You can achieve salvation with your hands. So that's what Paul is doing. He's giving his testimony to protect the partnership that they have in the gospel. And the passion, as you read this, the passion, the heart, the theology of Paul is in full display. So Gerald Hawthorne, he says, Nowhere else in his letters does Paul make so clear with such feeling how vitally important the person Christ is to him. And how tremendous was the impact of the resurrected Christ upon his life. And outlook as he does here in these verses. Meaning, it's very rare to find another passage in the Scriptures where you see Paul so, so energetic and so full of zeal to display the grace of Christ in his salvation. And we see here. There is nothing more exciting for Paul than to talk about the grace of God in his life. There is nothing more exciting for Paul than declare, to testify about the grace of Christ in saving a sinner like him. And there should be nothing more exciting in your life than declaring the grace of Christ in your life. Sadly, I see some people more excited about football, politics, and other things than the grace of God in their lives. That's sad. So, here is the outline. We come towards the last part here. And we are looking at what a true testimony, what a Christian testimony looks like. And there is the life before conversion, conversion, and after conversion. And we are walking through after conversion. And every Christian must have a testimony that there are, there are these three parts. You might not remember the specific date when that conversion took place. But you know that there was a time when God changed your heart and you started loving Him more and hating sin more. Amen? Okay, so let's go to... I'm going to skip this. You know the context. We have been walking through these verses for a long time. Verse 7, there is this change. Remember verse 7? A change. There was the life before, and then in verse 7, there is this drastic change. That's the conversion. But all that he had as gains, he counted. Remember the verb tense in the past? I counted at that moment. On the Damascus road, when Jesus took hold of me, at that moment I counted everything as loss. But Paul, do you think you were too radical? 
Would you go easier? Would you count just some things as loss? And he says, ha! Indeed, I count in the present everything as loss. And not only as loss, but as a filthy garbage that I would love to give to the false teacher so they can devour all that. Because of the surpassing treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because of Christ, I have lost everything in my life. And then we saw last Lord's Day, verse 9, he continues describing, because he says, Oh, I just want to gain Christ. That's, that's my goal, to gain Christ. And then he, he starts defining what gaining Christ is. And we saw in verse 9, last Lord's Day, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And here's Paul declaring, when I stand before the throne of God, when I stand before the judgment seat of the holy judge, I want the judge to look at me and see, not Paul, but see whom? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Do you remember in Revelation, people will be saying, let the rocks and the mountains fall on top of us so we can hide from the face of the Lamb. And, and Paul says, no, I just want to be found in Him, having His righteousness, clothed with His righteousness. And now he continues in verse 10. And here is where we start today. And, and he says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. He may share His sufferings. Become like Him in His death. And Paul now in verse 10, you can look at verse 8, and he's expanding verse 8. Remember in verse 8, he says that he counts everything as rubbish, as garbage, because of the surpassing value of what? What? Knowing. Knowing Christ Jesus, or the knowledge of Christ, if you remember that. The knowledge of Christ, meaning Christ knows Him and He knows Christ. And now He's expanding, verse 10, what He means by knowing Christ and being known by Christ. He's enlarging the meaning of verse 8. And you see, the verse 9, we talk about, we call that the doctrine of justification. Remember, the doctrine of justification. What is to be justified? It's not that you are made righteous, but you are declared. You are already righteous, and the Lord is declaring you to be righteous. Meaning, you are conforming to His standards. And that's verse 9. Paul longs to be clothed with Jesus' righteousness. But justification is not the end of things. Justification is not the ultimate goal and desire of the Christian. Justification is the beginning. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, have been justified by faith. What? We have what with God? We have shalom. We have peace with God. The relationship is restored. And now we have a relationship together. Justification is not and cannot be the ultimate desire of the Christian. It's not just to escape hell. We cannot have that as the only desire to escape hell. Everyone desires to escape hell. Nobody, if they knew what hell truly is, would say, oh yeah, I want to go there. But you see, the ultimate desire of the Christian is not just to escape hell, but it's to be in union with Christ and communion with Christ to become more and more like Christ Jesus. So, one scholar, he writes, Paul wanted, Paul wanted more than just a right standing with God on the day of judgment. He wanted more from Christ than just a Savior. He wanted to know Christ personally and fully so as to be made like Him. Unlike many Christians who want to know only certain aspects of Christ, Paul wanted first-hand knowledge of Christ in His complete experience of suffering and resurrection. 
The result of this intimate knowledge and fellowship was that Paul would be conformed to Jesus' death and would attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul and every Christian must long for much more than just justification. They must long for sanctification. What is sanctification? Oh, that's to be made holy. Another way of saying, what is sanctification? To become like Christ. Conformity to Christ Jesus. That's sanctification. And you read Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we were saved, predestined, chosen to be conformed to the image of the Son, who is Jesus. So you were saved, not simply to escape hell, but to glorify God, the triune God, by becoming more and more like the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of salvation. And notice, note, notice that Paul wants to know the full Christ. Not just some aspects of Christ, but the whole Christ. He talks about the resurrection, the suffering, the death. Suffering, death, resurrection. That's the glorious triad of Jesus' life that saved us. And that's what Paul wants to know. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, conformity to his death. And brothers and sisters, no, please look in your Bibles and you're going to see. That it doesn't say, I want you to know the power of his resurrection or the fellowship of his sufferings. As if people can pick and choose. Oh yes, I want the power of his resurrection. But God forbid the fellowship of His suffering. No, thank you. Conformity to His death. No, 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 no. You cannot pick and choose. It's inseparable. They're all together. And there is an order here. And it's an interesting order because Paul mentions first the resurrection power. You'd think that he would put the resurrection last, right? But actually, if you get verses 10 and 11, you see that the resurrection is the outer part of the sandwich that he's making here. So you have resurrection, verse 10, resurrection, verse 11, and then you have suffering and death in the middle here. And the order, why does Paul talk about the resurrection first? That's an interesting... The resurrection first. You think that he would put the resurrection last... Not the resurrection first. One way is to think about Paul's own life. He experienced the resurrected Christ, the power of Christ's resurrection on the Damascus road. And remember, once he experienced that power, what did Jesus tell him? You will be my vessel of much suffering. And then death. And the pattern with Paul is a pattern with all of us. We first of all experience the power of the resurrected Christ in saving us, giving us life. And then once we have this life in Jesus, the resurrection power in us, then we are empowered to experience the sufferings of Christ and be conformed to His death. And then attain the last or final resurrection afterwards. Amen? So there is an order and the order is important. We experience the resurrection power of Jesus. Only those who are made alive from their sins can truly have fellowship with Christ and His sufferings and be conformed to His death. So, what does He mean by the resurrection power? Oh, I want you to know Christ. And then He explains what He means by knowing Christ. To know the power of His resurrection. And that's very comprehensive. The power of His resurrection. I would say that's inseparable from the Holy Spirit. The power of the resurrection. And one other place we can see. Just turn your pages to the left. And go to Ephesians chapter 1. And you see how Paul often talks about this. The resurrection power. So in Ephesians chapter 1, look in verse, starting verse 15. 
He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand and in the heavenly places. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working. The resurrection that Christ had now resurrecting us spiritually. And that's very important. Some people are very happy and satisfied with a mediocre Christian life. Many people, many churchgoers, are satisfied with a horrible life, with a weak Christian life. Mediocracy. Sitting on the sidelines, watching others working and serving and sacrificing for Christ. But if you want to be an engine, if you want to be a force in the kingdom, you need Christ's power. And that's the power of His resurrection. That's exactly what Paul longs for. I don't want to be sitting on the sideline watching others working and serving and sacrificing. I want to be there serving, giving myself. And you know you cannot do that on your own. So you need the Holy Spirit who raised Christ. You come and raise you and keep raising you to do what you're supposed to do. F.F. Bruce, he writes, If the love of God is supremely demonstrated in the death of Christ, His power is supremely demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. And those who are united by faith with the risen Christ have this power imparted to them. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. He's quoting Ephesians 1. It's the power which, among other things, enables the believer to ignore the dictates of, or enticements of sin and to lead a life of holiness which pleases God. I want to know the power of His resurrection. That same resurrection power that raised Christ, I want daily in my life, Paul is saying, to conquer sin, to live less selfish lives, to serve others, to walk in holiness, to mortify sin. So that's why he says, I want this power in my life. The resurrection power. And then you see, he talks about also, not only the resurrection power, but the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul is developing what he did in chapter 2 when he was talking about Jesus Christ. And you remember, he who was in the form of God now took the form of a slave and there was the sufferings, the death, and the resurrection power. And that's basically what Paul is doing here. So he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. And here's the thing. There is no way to experience the resurrection power without the fellowship of sufferings. Right? Didn't Jesus have to go through the sufferings and death in order to receive the resurrection power? The same with us. There is no way, glorious that it is, the resurrection power to raise us to new life. There is no way to know Christ and the power of His resurrection without the fellowship of His sufferings. To know Christ is to be in intimate relationship with Christ, fellowship with the whole Christ, not some, Christ, some aspect of Christ. A lot of people love the victorious Christ, the resurrected Christ, but they do not want the suffering Christ. So to know Christ is to know the whole Christ. The victorious Christ, yes. The gracious Christ, yes. The merciful Christ, yes. The suffering Christ, yes. The rejected Christ, yes. The crucified Christ, yes. 
the whole Christ. That's why it's a very horrible and harmful theology, the prosperity teaching, that God just wants you to be rich and healthy. Uh, 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 you're not getting to know Christ. That's not the Christ of the Scriptures. You've got to have fellowship with His sufferings. Let me tell you, when you marry someone, you marry that whole person. Your spouse's joys become your joy. And your spouse's sufferings become your suffering. And you know, when a person is a loser, and a child of Satan, when as soon as a spouse is going through a hard time, he says, goodbye, I'm out, I'm done. But when you're in union with Christ, we have the whole Christ, the whole body of Christ. The same must be evidenced in the life of the church. When one member suffers, the other must suffer also. When one rejoices, the other rejoices because of our union with Jesus. So a person who professes to be a Christian but has no fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, has no communion with the sufferings of Christ, and that implies the sufferings in the body of Christ, that person is just a professor and not a possessor of the Christian faith. And the sufferings will vary. Jesus' sufferings vary. If I was to ask you, can you list some of the sufferings of Christ on your behalf? You could come up with a long list, right? Spat upon, blasphemed, slandered, beaten, mocked. Crucified. How about the agony of his soul? That was part of suffering. Agonizing. Patience with the slow disciples. Hmm. And the sufferings will vary. This fellowship of suffering might be manifested in rejection in society. Maybe not having a job promotion that you were expecting because of your faith in Christ. And the fact that you will not bow to the demands of Caesar. And all the new satanic sexual revolution. And because of that, you might not get a promotion in your job. You might get fired, actually. Lose your business. Being slandered by family members. Or maybe being beaten. Burned alive. So many brothers and sisters are suffering that right now. That's part of the fellowship of the sufferings. Oh, there is a variety. A variety of sufferings for all of us to experience. And rejoice and have this communion with Christ and His body in order to experience the power of His resurrection. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What is the this? Suffering, persecution. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So, brothers and sisters, no fellowship with Christ's suffering, no communion with Christ's rejection, no fellowship with Christ's pain, no resurrection power, no new life, no Christian maturity, no sanctification, in God's economy, sanctification is perfected through suffering. That's the way in God's economy. Just like Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Mature by suffering. The same in the Christian life. It's interesting, I was looking at the Latin translation of Philippians 3, verse 10. And it says, Et societatem passionum. The society of the passion. Huh. I think the society of the passion. 
the Rome and the translators of the Latin. The society. What is a society? Think about a society of the passion. Passion refers to suffering. When you talk about the passion of Christ, we're talking about Christ's suffering, His pain. The society of suffering. That's beautiful how they translated that. The communion of all the citizens in the sufferings of Christ. So, this is what it means to know Christ. To have fellowship with Christ's suffering. And that's very important. That's very, do you remember when Paul, he was persecuting, he was inflicting suffering and pain upon the Christians, and Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you inflicting pain on me? So there is this beautiful thing. In suffering, we have communion with Christ. We experience what Christ experienced on our behalf. And at the same time, we have this wonderful mediator that's experiencing with us that suffering. That's beautiful. So for true Christians, this is the greatest privilege of all. Because everyone will suffer. There is no way not to suffer. Everyone will suffer. But what a privilege it is to suffer because of Christ. Because of our fellowship with Christ. John, it's amazing how he presents himself to the churches in Asia. In Revelation 1.9, he says, I, John, your brother... And he doesn't say your apostle. He says, and your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. Your partner, one who has koinonia, fellowship in the tribulation. So, Paul says that the greatest ambition of a Christian is to know Christ, to know His resurrection power, but to know His resurrection power, you must have the fellowship of His suffering. And it's heartbreaking to see, especially in America, how so many of those who profess to be Christians, they hate. They hate with all their guts fellowship in Christ's suffering. Suffering, persecution, by no means. The power of God, yes. And the proof is, just look at this past few months. As soon as there was any threat, any threat to comfort, security, people ran away, hiding themselves. Oh, they go to work, they keep going, doing their things. By assembling, worshiping. Oh, that's dangerous. Any threat to comfort, health, and security. And you see, they're all hiding. I hear some Christians, in light of all that's taking place in our society, economically, it's a disaster. Amen? All the debt. The debt, it must explode sometime. The sexual revolution. And I hear some Christians saying, Oh, I feel so bad for my children, my grandchildren. I hear some other Christians say, I'm so glad I'm about to die and I'm not going to experience all these things. That's sad. That's heartbreaking. And that's why Christianity in America is so mediocre. Praise the Lord for the sufferings. Praise the Lord for the afflictions. That's how our children, ourselves, our grandchildren will know Christ. Stop with this idea. Oh, that's horrible. I need to do something to protect my children and my grandchildren. What? From knowing Christ? From knowing Christ? And the fellowship of His sufferings?
According to Revelation 22.8, the cowards, the cowards, those who are scared of suffering for Christ, belong to the lake of fire. Remember, one of the reasons why the Judaizers were so, so accepting in the churches was because their teachings would bring some relief to Christians in light of persecution. Because as soon as they started adopting the Jewish, the Jewish lifestyle, there were certain liberties that the Christians didn't have. And that's why Paul says, ah, no, no, no. Don't go to the knife of Abraham and the yoke of Moses to escape suffering. If we embrace Christ, you rejoice. It has been granted to you, has been given to you, not only to believe, but to uh, suffer for His sake. And I see, especially with the rise in our days, especially in the Reformed circles in particular, of post-millennialism, post-millennialism, theonomy, the victorious church on earth, we need to conquer Take over government. Where is that? Where is that? So we no longer have fellowship with the sufferings, with the persecution. Let us be careful with any teaching that denies necessity of fellowship with suffering, pain, persecution, and tribulation in order to know Christ. Conference, reformed conference, defying tyrants, defying tyrants. Why not? How to suffer for God's glory? Ah, now you don't know. We have the Constitution. Yep, that's. The Christianity around us. No Christ through sufferings. Fellowship of pain because of His sake. Losing my job because of Him. Losing my inheritance because of Him. No, no. That's not what Christ wants from me. And then He says, Becoming. Becoming like Him in His death. And this verb takes us back to chapter 2, the same root verb for morphe, the form. It's used here. Becoming like Him in His death. That doesn't mean that Paul is this morbid person thinking about crucifixion. Oh, how long to be crucified just like my Lord was. That's not what Paul is doing. Becoming like Him in His death. You need to think about how was Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die? He emptied Himself. He was crucified. Why? Because He was placing others above Himself. So to become like Jesus in His death doesn't mean I just wanted to be crucified. If I'm not crucified, I don't want to die. No. He's talking about all that's involved in Christ's death. Paul is saying, Jesus died as a slave. He was just like a slave. And that's how I want to die every single day. The verb tense here, being conformed, speaks of God already doing this work in His life, dying every day for the sake of others. And it's only when death and suffering are working in us that we can truly experience what? The resurrection power. And then last, verse 11. And here you see this beautiful chain that we have of conversion. Justification, sanctification, and now uh, glorification. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And here's the conclusion of every Christian testimony. I long to be with my Lord. To be glorified. Paul is not talking about... Uh, Spiritual resurrection, he's talking about the final resurrection, what we call the second and final resurrection. The first resurrection is the spiritual resurrection that we all receive 
when the Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive in Christ. But now Paul is talking about the final resurrection. When the, there will be no longer... Do you know how we always talk about the already but not yet? It's going to be only already. There will be no not yet anymore. We will be removed. That's what we call the glorification. And you stand before Christ. And he says that by any means possible, it doesn't express doubt on Paul's part. It's not like, I don't know if I'm going to attend. No, he's, by whatever means that God appoints, martyrdom, natural death, Jesus coming, whatever. I just want, and the word is to arrive. I just want to arrive there. I don't, I don't care how. I just want to arrive at the resurrection from the dead and be glorified and be with my Lord forever and ever. That's Paul's last line here of his testimony. Why does Paul want to be resurrected from the dead? Why does Paul want to be glorified? See, for many people, they want a heaven because in heaven there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows. Streets paved with gold. Glory to God. All these things are wonderful. But the reason why Paul wants to be there is because he will be with his beloved one, Christ Jesus. For me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Because then I acquire all that I'm longing for. So that's what Paul is saying here. And every Christian ought, every Christian must long for eternity. We must long for eternity. It's sad to see so many people who profess to be Christians. Creating, stalking their treasures in heaven, in, on earth. Our greatest treasure is not on earth. It's in heaven. Let me tell you what Jesus says, what the earth provides. The earth provides moth, rust, and thieves. And I see brothers and sisters who are holding to this eschatology. Where the earth, the now. No, no, no. The earth provides moth, rust, and thieves. Our treasure is up there where Christ is seated. That's what Paul is telling us right here. So, we see, as we come towards the end here, a connection between suffering, death, and resurrection. Paul talks about the resurrection, and then he talks about suffering, and then he talks about death, and then he talks about resurrection. And you think about that was the pattern of Christ's work for us. Right? Christ saved us. His work for you, David, His work for you, Rick, was suffering, death, resurrection. Wasn't that the pattern for us to save us? And now, He adopts the same pattern to work in us. Not for us, but in us. Suffering, death, resurrection. Without suffering and death, no glory. And Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 8. He says to the churches in Rome, and he saying to all of us, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And let me ask you, are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? I hope so. And then he explains, and if children, then heirs, praise the Lord, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And I remember a preacher, Rachel and I were at this church, and he stopped right here. Because his, his theology did not allow suffering, only prosperity. So he had to stop right there. We are heirs of God, children of God. He wants us to be rich, healthy. And I'm like, Keep reading. No, there is no space in his theology. Provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you want the glory? Oh, yeah. No glory without the cross. A life that's not cruciform, a life that has no shape of cross, no humiliation in order to serve Christ and His people, means no glorification. So, let me finish with just two brief lessons here. As we come towards the end of Paul's testimony. The first one is that the greatest ambition, the greatest desire of a Christian must be to know Christ Jesus. To know Christ Jesus. And you remember what I told you about knowledge. Knowing Christ is this intimate, covenantal relationship. And we see that by where Paul places the word knowledge or knowing in these verses. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Oh, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection may share in His suffering. Notice that Paul doesn't say that I may know about. I want to know about the power. I want to know about the sufferings. I want to know about Jesus. No, 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 no. Every single day, Paul's ambition is to know Christ. And here is a man who has been teaching Christians for decades now when he writes this letter. He's the major theologian of the Christian faith. And yet, he says, there's always more to know. He's such this treasure that I can always know Him more and more every single day. People would say, Paul, but you are teaching people theology. You write these letters teaching us about Christ. And he'd say, I don't care about, about Christ. My goal is to know Christ. To know Him. That's what Paul is saying here. To know Christ is to love Him. To submit to His commandments. To treasure Him. To obey Him no matter what. To know Christ is to put to death all the same sins that keep enslaving you. To know Christ is to walk in holiness. So let me ask you, do you long to know Christ? Do you long to know Christ? The power of His resurrection. Not to know about His suffering, but to know the fellowship of His suffering. To know, to experience conformity to His death. That's the greatest goal, the greatest ambition of every Christian. That's eternal life. To know the Father and to know Him, Jesus Christ. And second, second lesson, I told you it was going to be quick. The Christian's testimony must always be Christ's testimony. Or the Christian story must be always Christ's story. Okay? And we see that... Uh, the, by how Paul emphasizes Christ as he's giving his testimony. Look at this. But whatever gains I had, I count loss because of whom? Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in Him, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, share His sufferings, become like Him, His death. So who, who is the object here? Christ. So Paul's testimony is what? The testimony about whom? Christ Jesus. The treasure worth more than everything to Paul is Christ Himself. To gain Him, to be found in Him, to know Him. And that must be the story of our lives. Christ Jesus. We were singing here, from beginning to the end, it's your grace. From beginning to the end. He's the Alpha and Omega of our lives. Christ Jesus. 
Every Christian testimony must witness the power of Christ and how Christ found you, transformed you, loved you, and gave Himself up for you. And now how you long to be with Him forever. That's the Christian testimony. You see, there is the shift. Oh yes, before conversion, that was my life. A child born under the wrath of God, hating Christ. Conversion and now. How much I love Christ. It's all about Christ. Knowing Christ. Being found in Christ. Knowing Christ. Loving Him. That's the Christian testimony. So, let me ask you. Is that you? Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, especially verses 7 through 11. Is that you? Is that the longing of your heart? Is that the longing of your heart? To know Him. To be found in Him. Let me ask, can you stand before God today and say, Lord, You who searches all hearts, You who knows all things, You know how my greatest desire is to know You. To know the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being conformed to your death. But there are a lot of people that they want to know about Christ. Some of you here, you want to know about Christ. And some people come to this church because the teaching. Oh, and they love to know about the Hebrew, and they, le- they learn to know about the Greek, and they learn to know about the Latin, and they love to learn about the sufferings. But what they love is to know for knowledge's sake. They do not love Christ. They do not want to know Christ. They like to know things so they feel smart. They leave the church and they are feeling more wise. Wiser than before. More knowledgeable. But the question is, is your heart being enlarged? Do you love Christ more? Do you want to know Christ? Not know about Christ. There are so many theologians. So many people who profess to be Christians. And they know so much about Christ's suffering. They can tell you everything of how the Romans crucified people in the first century. How much suffering was involved in Christ's death. But then you look at his life or her life and you don't see any desire to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. So, I hope that's not you. I hope today is the day that you just throw yourself at his feet, throw yourself, cast yourself at his feet and say, I want to know you. I want to know you. I'm tired of knowing about you. My parents know you. The people around me, they know you. I know about you. I don't want that. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to treasure you. And that requires my fellowship with your sufferings. Yes, let it be. Let come. So I can know you. That's my prayer. That we all would leave this place not with a gigantic head, a gigantic brain, but a gigantic heart. Loving to know Christ and to partake of the fellowships, the fellowship of His sufferings, even in this church. Knowing Christ by knowing one another and the sufferings and the resurrection power. In order that, it doesn't matter how, we may attain, we arrive at the resurrection from the dead, the glorification. Father, we ask You to do that in our hearts. That's something that no man can do on his own. No woman can do on her own. No child can do that on his own. We need Your Resurrection power to work in dead hearts. So would you please change us, transform us, and empower us 
to desire to know Christ. That I may know Him. The power of His resurrection. The fellowship of His sufferings. Oh, yes. Becoming like Him in His death every single day. Dying like a slave. Being crucified just like my Lord. So I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So help us to be a church that know Christ. Not a church that knows about Christ, though that's important, but a church that knows Christ, that loves Jesus, and is reflected in our conversation, in our singing, in our prayers, in our fellowship. So make this the desire of our hearts, Lord. Knowing You, Jesus, knowing You, there is no greater thing, no greater treasure. So make this truth in our lives. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen.